0: Before we get on to my conversation with Dr. Dom, I got to give a shout out to you guys, the listeners who continue to plow in with those five-star reviews. If it grabs you in a good way, that is head on over to Apple podcasts and leave a five-star review. When you have time, it really helps. Today's five-star review comes from Dr. Norman, 1851, and he says best content in the peak performance space. Boomer does a great job at letting his guests speak. The topics are wide-ranging, so the content always seems fresh and relevant. It doesn't matter if you listen to this for one hour after it's posted or one year. You will get something out of each guest's expertise. This podcast is the only podcast I need in my queue on the topic of peak performance. Subscriber for life. Well, Dr. Norman, you just put a smile on this guy's face. I really appreciate you and appreciate your review. Again, if it grabs you in a good way, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five star review when you have time. I appreciate you all. Today on the podcast, we're talking the ketogenic diet, time restricted feeding, life underwater, and so much more with Mr. Keto himself, Dr. Dominic D'Agostino. He's maintained a vast array of professional, academic, and personal endeavors as an associate professor with tenure at the University of South Florida. He teaches at the Morsani College of Medicine and the Department of Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology. Say that a few times fast. Okay, what does he teach? Neuropharmacology, medical biochemistry, physiology, neuroscience, and so much more. Yes, he is a smart guy. So let's just get on with the episode, shall we? Decodingsuperhuman.com slash Dom, you're really going to want to check out these show notes. And this conversation had such a deep impact on my life and how I look at this podcast and its impact on the world. So stick through it to the end. Enjoy my conversation with Dr. Dominic D'Agostino. Rather than having a typical sponsorship as we would right here, I want to point you guys to ketonutrition.org. Ketonutrition.org is Dr. Dominic D'Agostino's website. If you go there and purchase any of the products available, Dom really receives no money, but his research does. And so head over to ketonutrition.org, buy whatever you can, because the work this man is doing in the research lab is impacting lives all over the world. Please head over to ketonutrition.org, and let's get on with the conversation. <laughs> Dr. Dom, welcome. Thanks for
1: having me, Boomer.
0: This is a conversation I've wanted to have for a while. And I know when we were initially introduced, uh, you spent some time in Hungary over the holidays. Mm -hmm. And because I've heard you comment on this in the past, and I'm going through the same experience at home right now, you've mentioned before that your wife is very carb tolerant and you happen to maybe eat a little bit less carbs than her. How do you make that work at home? Because I know for many people listening, this is a constant battle.
1: Yeah, well, uh, for breakfast, if we do have breakfast together and we try to, uh, you know, she has her thing and I have my thing, but for dinner and during the midday, we're off at work doing our thing, but we always have a sit down dinner together. And essentially what we do is cook some kind of beef, chicken, fish. And uh, a salad, vegetables, and and she will sometimes have a starch on the side.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Whereas you know, I won't I won't have that. And I believe your wife is Korean, so yeah. rice is like a staple <laughs> you know, Potatoes have been kind of staple for my wife, uh, but I think the last time we had breakfast together, uh, and sometimes I skip it, but uh, but she has like muffins and. Uh, and maybe some yogurt and some kind of fruity drink, you know, so it's probably a hundred or more grams of carbs like for breakfast. So I probably won't have that for the whole course of a week (laughs) for carb allotment just for breakfast. Uh, but she tolerates it very well, Mm -hmm. at at least at this age. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. And, And I guess that begs the question, how was hungry for you? I think there's a few options in terms of a keto lifestyle, but.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's actually pretty easy if you Mm -hmm. wanted to uh, follow keto there, especially in the countryside, because, uh, there's lots of, there's wild game and stuff where we were at, uh, there's a particular heritage, uh, pig there, pork that they have. That's Mm -hmm. part. It's always on the menu, uh, fish or trout they have, you know, there's a lot of streams where we were at, um, But it's pretty easy to follow, and her mom is very receptive and understands the diet, so would cook, especially for me. Uh, But at the same time, there's lots of pastries and stuff, especially if you're in Budapest (laughs) and you're traveling, you know, uh, in more of the downtown areas and stuff. Uh, So I know know my wife misses a lot of the sort of comfort foods over there. Mm -hmm. So she indulged quite a bit, uh, but... I think we both lost considerable amount of weight when we were there, even though it felt like we were eating nonstop because we were walking so much. Mm-hmm. We did a lot of hiking and stuff too. So, uh, but yeah. And then I probably ate a lot more carbs than I normally do mm-hmm. during that three weeks of travel, uh, because I do like to experience the, the culture, mm-hmm. you know, in different, in different areas. Um, uh, and it was holidays, Christmas time. Uh, but we definitely burned off because we were doing a lot of activity.
0: Uh, it's a it's a country that I need to get to, and I really have yeah. no excuse because I'm I'm like a three hour flight away. So, um,
1: yeah, yeah. It, it is. I mean, you could take the train too, right? I mean, just, um, just different. Yeah, we went to Vienna and we went to Austria too, and, and Hallstatt uh, is you know really nice. We drove pretty much everywhere that's know, between Austria and Hungary.
0: Yeah. Sounds like we should exchange vacation recommendations after this. Yeah, absolutely. uh, I want to talk just first a little bit about NEMO 22 Mm -hmm. uh, and how it relates to the ketogenic diet. Because you spent 10 days underwater. I would love to know first, what was that like? Because I, I haven't done it. I haven't done more than a handful of dives in my life but what was that like and why is the ketogenic diet important in that situation?
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I I followed the ketogenic diet throughout, uh, actually more strict than I typically do uh, here at home. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, I guess my interest in the ketogenic diet may have gotten me on, uh, or got me on the radar of NASA's sort of planning committee and the director Mm -hmm. of these space analog programs. And NASA has probably about 13 or 14 different space analogs. And NEMO is really the most relevant. And to my understanding, uh, NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operations, uh, they come up with clever acronyms for these things. Uh, NEMO is uh, the only sort of uh, uh, analog, deep space travel analog that uses astronauts. Because astronaut time is like at a high premium. And Mm -hmm. there's other things like high seas, and the HERA mission where they take everyday folks and put them in for up to a month. But NEMO is typically about uh, seven days uh, to two weeks. Um, And uh, the idea is NASA vets out different procedures, different technologies, different physiological uh, strategies in this space analog mission because it is so, Relevant to deep space travel because you're mm-hmm. living in a habitat. Uh, when you do the EVAs, which is extravehicular activity, you are neutrally buoyant. So it's like being... In, sometimes you're weighted to be on the lunar surface. Sometimes you're weighted to be on the Mars surface, depending upon the mission. And there's also a time delay, uh, depending on what... If you're on an asteroid or uh, Mars or the moon, they'll in- incorporate a time delay. So when you're doing operational Operational activities during the EVA that you have to work with that time delay, mm-hmm. and that could be pretty challenging too. Uh, so, I have been studying the ketogenic diet as a uh, a countermeasure against extreme environments experienced by the the Navy SEAL or the combat diver using closed circuit rebreathers mm-hmm. uh, or doing special operations missions, and. Uh, It it kind of falls back on early work that the military did with fasting, and it didn't actually get publicized much. So it it took a while for this to get on my radar, maybe in 2007 or eight, showing that fasting uh, allowed rats to stay in an extreme environment uh, to delay their latency to seizure by like over 200%. Mm. And that was more than any drug therapy that we had at the time. Wow. So I became more interested in this idea of fasting ketosis, but fasting wasn't really feasible uh, for the most part for uh, an operational diver. So the ketogenic diet got put on my radar and then the Charlie Foundation, and then I connected with Johns Hopkins. And I realized that this diet was just not a fad diet. I mean, this is before the ketogenic diet got popular, Mm -hmm. you know, well over 10 years ago. And I realized that there was legitimate, you know, medical... Uh, research showing that it could uh, work for a variety of seizure types. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, independent of the etiology, it worked for a lot of different seizure types. So we developed experiments that got funding by the department of defense to test this proof of concept that a ketogenic strategy in the form of a ketone ester, because the military wanted a ketogenic diet and a pill,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, could delay oxygen toxicity seizures. And it did so remarkably well. And then that was a springboard for many, for a continuation of experiments. And we're doing human experiments now uh, at Duke University. And that'll be my presentation at Metabolic Health Summit. Mm -hmm. I'll be talking about the experiments at Duke. And, uh, And throughout, I guess shortly after I started doing this research, I... Oh, I, I, got, I got invited to different workshops, and there were key people at NASA's Human Research Program at these workshops. And the HRP is the Human Research Program really develops uh, countermeasures and safety strategies for astronauts uh, with the intent to keep them safe and keep their performance high during long-term missions. And my presentation at these, at these conferences engage the right people and i gave a number of presentations at nasa and other places and i got i basically i got an invite to be a crew member uh, which That's was really really cool to be on the nasa nemo 22 mission my colleague don carnegus who's at the institute for human and machine cognition was a crew member for nemo 21 mm-hmm. and my wife was a crew member for nemo 23 actually So, uh, so when I got on the mission, it was, um, really exciting to be part of that. And we wanted to cram in as much science as possible. And part of that science was on myself doing a strict ketogenic diet and ketone supplementation and measuring everything from hormones to blood inflammatory markers, cardiometabolic markers, my neurotransmitters, uh, and we've collected my gut microbiome, my skin microbiome, psychological data, my strength, my body composition. All these things are measured mm-hmm. because NASA really wants to understand that if you put people together in a confined environment, in an extreme environment with a high level of CO2 that correlates to International Space Station, levels will see it 20 times higher, and in an oxidative environment too, what are the physiological, psychological uh and performance decrements mm-hmm. uh, that may you know come about in this environment, mm-hmm. and that's what Nemo is all about. It's really about understanding extreme environments. How people can live psychological tests are a big part of that, and I believe that being on a ketogenic diet helps to normalize some aspects of our behavior that can be favorable as it pertains to you know stabilizing different metabolic markers that can keep our energy levels stable uh it changes our physiology to make us more resilient under certain uh conditions Mm -hmm. so so that's kind of like the story about how sort of i got on nemo and the science is a whole other story and i think we have at least four posters at metabolic health summit so when you're there uh, uh my wife will be standing at the posters and stuff and you can go through and see all the different science you know, projects we had
0: on there. Absolutely. And we'll link to all this stuff in the show notes because yeah. people uh, will get this episode a little bit after the summit, but of course that allows me to take pictures and put it all up there. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, just really high level. What were some of the results okay. of the markers that you were taking on yourself? I'm, I'm fascinated and kind of a quantified self geek as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not published yet. And, okay. uh, some of it is still being quantified, like the HRV and the sleep data. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of sleep data, stress, physiological stress. Uh, I, so some of the things that really stood out were that uh, the extreme environment typically elevates oxidative markers mm-hmm. of oxidative stress. And we're still looking at the other data, but we believe that the, the ketogenic diet really knocked that down and really help to preserve um, cardiometabolic markers mm-hmm. that we think are important. Uh, the, it is a hypercapnic environment, hypercapnia being elevated CO2 levels. Mm-hmm. So instead of 3,000 parts per million, it's over three. I mean, over 300 parts per million, although CO2 levels have been climbing over the last 100 years, so it's climbing from near 400 parts per million. The habitat is really close to about 3,000. Mm. Uh, parts per million or more. In some cases, it got up to six or 8,000 parts per million. Mm. And that has been shown to, for example, permeabilize the uh, intestinal lining and the tight junctions tend to loosen up. So you get leaky gut Yeah, the rodent model. So there's a lot of things that we kind of predicted that would happen. Inflammatory markers went up. Being on a ketogenic diet made my GABA to glutamate ratio go up. And I think that preservation of elevated GABA mm lower glutamate may have served an important function uh, from a psychological standpoint of maybe being more calm in this environment.
0: Subjectively, just uh, given that, was your sleep better? Um, you- uh,
1: we're analyzing. Uh, I have like uh, people analyzing this now. who have developed <laughs> algorithms that look at HRV. Uh, but I have, I wear a, a uh, actually the Aura company gave us, gave NASA uh, six rings for mm-hmm. this and uh, I started using it maybe a half a year before but my sleep was consistently instead of seven hours it was consistently about six hours or about six hours and 15 minutes mm-hmm. each day during the mission and instead of an hour and maybe 20 or an hour and 30 minutes of deep sleep which was my normal I was consistently getting two or more hours per sleep per, per night even though I was sleeping about an hour less. wow! So my deep sleep was higher. My restorative sleep was higher. And that could just be because of maybe we were task loaded, maybe because we were outside doing EVAs in the water and we would get cold. And maybe we were just like uh, physical exertion, mental exertion. I don't know. It's hard to simulate this and predict why this happened. But something about the environment definitely made me... Uh, uh, have deeper sleep. I can't say it it made me have less sleep because we were on a strict timeline. So Mm -hmm. we had to wake up, I think five 30 each morning. And I don't wake up that early. I usually wake up about seven. Mm -hmm. So I was waking up earlier, still going to bed at like, I don't know, close to midnight, I think. And,
0: um, so duration was a little bit forced and therefore, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, Yeah.
1: They allowed us to go to bed after 10, but we had to prepare because we had to study for what we were doing the next day, mm-hmm. really. So if we were doing uh, DNA sequencing or PCR analysis or some new kind of instrument, I wanted to read the manuals. And some of these manuals were like 100 pages thick, <laughs> So I just wanted to get an idea because if your task get, gets delayed, everything is synchronized and choreographed if you're delayed, then you delay the next guy. And I don't, I didn't want to piss off the astronauts. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> my commander was really on top of everything. Uh, Shell Lindgren, and he is a medical doctor. He's been on ISS for like a half a year. Like he was on point and I was watching him prepare for this. And I was like, okay, I need to like up my standards here and really just be prepared mm-hmm. uh, as much as I can for this. So that tapped into my sleep time. And that happens in daily life too. Yeah, of course. We have a grant deadline or whatever.
0: Mm -hmm. If you don't mind, I want to transition a little bit more into disease states first, and then go back into performance a little bit later. Um, Alzheimer's in the ketogenic diet. I'm fascinated by this topic because I have family that's been affected. I mean, it's one of the leading causes of death out there. And, would love to hear just your thoughts around carb tolerance as we get older, the effects of ketogenic diet, and then, of course, I'd love to ask about APOE4 um, and those types of people. so:
1: Sure. Uh, I do uh, actually one of the, fir- the first ketogenic diet experiments that we did at University of South Florida was with the Burt Alzheimer's Institute. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was testing a ketogenic diet in mouse models of Alzheimer's. So that was the thing that first engaged me. So using it for an application that was uh, an off-label <laughs> sort of use of the ketogenic diet, and it still is off-label, but it's still continuing to gain some steam. Uh, Dr. Mary Newport is a, was a doctor uh, is a, is a doctor here, and she was a pediatrician, and her husband had advanced Alzheimer's disease and was uh, studied at the Burt Alzheimer's Institute. And he consumed coconut oil and MCT oil and did better on the mini mental status test and also the clock test. And this made front page of the St. Pete Times Mm -hmm. in our area. And it was right about the time that I started getting interested in the ketogenic diet for oxygen toxicity. So I saw the paper and someone was like, you're studying ketones, right? This, this woman observed that her husband uh, had a dramatic response and he had advanced Alzheimer's disease uh, and he was studied at the Bird Institute. Where we're at. So I connected with Mary Newport and I actually brought her into the University of South Florida and had her do guest lectures. And she inspired me to think beyond the ketogenic diet, actually to think of ketones as a means to restore brain energy metabolism, because with Alzheimer's disease, a hallmark characteristic is glucose hypometabolism. Mm -hmm. And that can be validated and is validated on uh, an FDG PET scan, a fluorodeoxyglucose PET scan, Mm -hmm. will show glucose hypometabolism in the brain. And it is due in part because there's some atrophy in the brain, but it's also due in part because there are metabolic systems in the brain that are deficient in Alzheimer's disease. And that includes pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. Uh, the enzyme is less active and your body produces less proteins, you know, less of the enzyme. So you have less of the enzyme there and the actual enzyme is, is not as active mm-hmm. as it would be in, in, in younger people. Also, there's a transporter on neurons called the, uh, the GLUT3 transporter, yeah. and it tends to get internalized over time and less, if you do a immunohistochemical staining, this transporter is not uh, at the same level as it is in younger individuals. So, uh, and also the vasculature changes in the brain with time too. So there's, it's multifactorial as to why the brain has glucose hypometabolism. Uh, but the point is that we have an understanding that it is an energy problem, mm-hmm. and ketone bodies can be elevated in millimolar concentrations in the blood, and that represents a pretty significant source of energy uh, in in the blood, for mm-hmm. the brain. And this can be achieved with therapeutic fasting, ketogenic diet, or ketone supplementation, or a medium-chain triglyceride oil, mm-hmm. which can convert in part to ketone bodies. So, uh, so this got put on my radar. We did some studies to show some therapeutic effects in mice. And I've been in touch with individuals that do research like, uh, Dr. Stephen Cunane, he's in Canada, Mary Newport, of course. And her husband had used a ketone ester too. And she feels that she got an extra, you know, decade or at least half a decade with her husband, you know, over
0: time. Do you you know what ester it was?
1: Yeah, it was the beta-hydroxybutyrate monoester that was developed by NIH and and Oxford. So it was that ester. And that ester had been sort of developed and in production. At certain points in time, she was using sort of the ester that we synthesized and formulated Mm -hmm. and getting that from a a scientific uh, supplier and had a very positive response to that too uh, because there was a period in time where uh, her availability to that the other ester was limited, mm-hmm. so my understanding is that both gave you know very positive effects. Uh, so her husband was, I believe, apo
0: E uh, four. Yeah this this is particularly uh, <laughs> interesting because there's a lot of people out there doing these pretty dirty keto and yeah. taking pictures on Instagram, right? And it's a lot of bacon, a lot of fat saturated fat in particular, I would love to just hear your take on if you're APOE 3, 4, or 4, 4, what, what do you do is MCT oil. You said her husband was taking MCT oil. So is that the option?
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think MCT oil is a good option. And I think in, in regards to, uh, people who are 4, 4 or 3, 4, I think, a ketogenic diet is a rather extreme dietary intervention and it works remarkably well for epilepsy. Mm-hmm. And that's my bread and butter, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, so, and it was even odd to me that the more I started, I got entrenched into the epilepsy world and I saw like people like uh, uh, Jeff Bullock and Stephen Finney and other people were advocating this for exercise. Mm-hmm. And that was almost like strange to me because I was in a world of, neurology and epilepsy and that low carb was using because I was, you know, uh, sort of like a recreational athlete or uh, gym guy and, uh, really didn't think about it as a legitimate means, you know, for body composition alterations or even performance. Mm-hmm. But my mind on that has changed over time. Uh, but when it comes to the APOE4 status and I've talked about this on other Podcast. My general feeling is that low carb has many benefits in regards to shifting biomarkers that can be favorable for the long term status of those individuals. I think most important is your cardiometabolic markers mm-hmm. need to be controlled, and that's insulin, hemoglobin A1C, HSCRP, and triglycerides, and maybe a few others, but those like four right there are really important, uh, to basically optimize, Mm -hmm. you know, if you genetically are this, you know, genotype and to prevent (laughs) the Alzheimer's phenotype over time, Mm -hmm. um, a ketogenic diet may not be optimal. Although I know quite a few people who are four, four, who follow a ketogenic diet. Um, and I think the food choices are also really important. Yeah over time and you can get around a strict ketogenic diet and optimize your ketone levels with just a combination of low carb and intermittent fasting Mm -hmm. and i think that would be important too if this is you know something you're concerned about
0: would switching to just monounsaturated fats work or
1: yeah so that's the next topic yeah i uh I definitely observed in myself and other people's blood work that when they go away from dairy fat, especially, yeah. but even some uh, animal-based saturated fat, and they start getting more monounsaturated fat in the diet, mm-hmm. uh, start getting a more favorable lipid profile. And we don't know what things like elevated uh, LDL uh, or LDL particle number uh you know Things that may spike up when people initiate a ketogenic diet, we're not fully confident that these are reliable biomarkers for long-term uh, atherogenic risk mm-hmm. uh, in people in the context of a, a low-carb diet or ketogenic diet. The data is not there. I don't know when the data will be there. But I think in the meantime, it would be prudent to optimize these biomarkers by doing what you said, by uh, Bringing down the saturated fat and uh, and replacing it with monounsaturated fat. The early versions of the ketogenic diet was super high in saturated fat, especially dairy, mm-hmm. and there were some concerns in kids. And this goes back, you know, well well more than a decade ago. And I think our knowledge about saturated fat and monounsaturated fat and uh, hydrogenated fats too. I think that were part of the early some of the early ketogenic <laughs> formulations. Supplements—it's kind of crazy, but uh, yeah, phasing those things out has led to, uh, you know, uh, improved versions of the ketogenic diet, and also I chaired, I co-chaired the uh, American Epilepsy Society Special Interest Group, Mm -hmm. which is the big convention for epilepsy, Uh, and Dr. Eric Kossoff from Johns Hopkins continues to present some pretty compelling data that a modified ketogenic diet that's not 90% fat, but more like 70 to 65% fat, uh, continues to have a favorable response in epilepsy. In some cases, it's equal as far as efficacy, especially in adults. Mm -hmm. So we didn't think early on that the diet would be helpful with adults in epilepsy, but about 10 years ago, that was confirmed And now we used a modified ketogenic diet approach in adults. And actually that's what the fitness community is using. Now uh, practitioners, pediatricians, or pediatric neurologists are when appropriate uh, converting their pediatric patients from the classical ketogenic diet to modified ketogenic diet and seeing sort of similar seizure control. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the understanding that it had to be super strict and 90% fat it, that those attitudes are changing. And in some cases it does need to be, uh, or works a little bit better, but it's not probably as important as we once thought it was.
0: Wow. So we're it's seeing that high fat. So we're seeing some of the benefits even at 70% fat versus 90% fat for epileptic seizures. So I have that right. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. And what's interesting is Elizabeth, uh, uh, Teal, Teal at, at Harvard and Gary Yellen, and I think they, they work together. They've uh, published and documented a low glycemic index diet, mm-hmm. which is it's lower carb and the carbs that are part of that diet are lower glycemic index. And that has a favorable therapeutic response for a number of uh, neurological disorders. Uh, they're looking at autism right now, but also different seizure disorders too mm-hmm. can have therapeutic effects. So this idea that we actually need to be in a high level of ketosis is not completely embraced in in the community, and other practitioners who use a ketogenic diet to manage their epilepsy patients are convinced that elevated ketones are absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. And without a doubt, they are beneficial, but whether they're essential for all forms of epilepsy, I think just lowering Rates of glycolysis okay. by restricting carbohydrates to a certain degree and suppressing the hormone insulin can have favorable effects on brain energy homeostasis. You know, and in many cases, the etiology of epilepsy is largely unknown. Mm-hmm. Uh, the diet works, and we don't know how because it works through so many different mechanisms. Uh, but it works, and that's the important thing. So we're trying to, we're still trying to figure out what is the optimal diet and for what disorder, you know, and if supplemental ketones can be, can replace the ketogenic diet when the patient is unable or unwilling to follow a ketogenic diet.
0: Mm -hmm. And before I ask the next question, I just want to state to everybody listening here, this is just sharing information. It's not medical advice at all. Please go see your doctor, but uh, cardiovascular disease. And the ketogenic diet, because I know you've said it in the past and the research clearly states that it's very, you know, for your heart in terms of fuel, it's a great source. And correct me if I'm wrong on those terms there. Should somebody that's in a state of cardiovascular disease investigate this diet, even though that's contrary to what we've been told for the past 40, 50, 40, 50 years?
1: It is controversial. I noticed, a little uh, hesitant, you know, I'll, I'll give my opinion. Mm-hmm. And I think the cardiovascular concerns of a, ke- uh, of a ketogenic diet as being atherogenic uh, are not really well founded. Uh, when, we, when, when people criticize the ketogenic diet, they typically point to a high fat diet. Mm-hmm. So high fat diets are atherogenic. There's a big difference between a high fat diet and a ketogenic diet a diet that puts your body into a state of metabolic ketosis uh, is really shifting your metabolism. And typically what happens is that this type of diet inadvertently produces calorie restriction, which correspondingly like, changes many different biomarkers in a favorable way, suppressing the hormone insulin uh, by virtue of hormone suppression of insulin, you tend to have a mild diuretic effect. So that decreases your, your blood volume because it has a diuretic effect and maybe a natriuretic effect, maybe your sodium too. So your blood pressure goes down, uh, your heart rate usually goes down, your sympathetic nervous system typically goes down a little bit just from HRV data.
0: Uh, just real quick on that. So from inflammation, from ketosis, you see a net effect of a decrease in sympathetic nerve activation, nervous system activation. I
1: I think we can, we can reliably say that. Yeah. For calorie restriction. Uh And I think a ketogenic diet by suppressing a hormone insulin, uh, does have some effects on the nervous system and, and maybe even thyroid too to some extent, uh, and I know I see it in myself.
0: Yeah, yeah me too. <laughs> uh,
1: and I have to really mine the HRV data uh, because it could be a calorie restriction effect. But I think uh, even independent of calories, I think when you cause this metabolic shift, you are creating uh, a suppression of sympathetic nervous system drive to some extent. Maybe not activating parasympathetic system. And I don't... I don't I want to put this in context because I don't think it compares to benefits that you'd get, for example, from exercise, Mm -hmm. you know, strenuous exercise cardiovascular exercise can activate the sympathetic or decrease the sympathetic nervous system transiently increase, right. But activate the parasympathetic nervous system and things like meditation uh, can also do that. Uh, But I think we're just starting to understand what dietary influence. And I, I think it's, I think it's important to, to tease out the benefits of the ketogenic diet from calorie restriction mm-hmm. because I think historically we you know calorie restriction uh, just has all these benefits and the ketogenic diet has been shown in many different studies to have many different benefits and the authors kind of gloss over the fact that the individuals maybe lost some weight and so that means that they were calorie restricted mm-hmm. and when you're, when you're calorie restrict like like everything improves, especially if the individuals were a little bit heavy going into it. Um, so I think that needs to be acknowledged and appreciated. Uh, and that's a good thing, right? I'm not saying the ketogenic diet uh, does not have a lot of favorable effects, but I think the many of the favorable effects are due to the calorie restriction, appetite suppressing effects that the ketogenic diet has in individuals. I seen it happen. So many times, and in kids, that can be a negative thing because if you have a child that needs to grow and maintain a certain bone density and weight status, the ketogenic diets can be challenging because they tend to be it tends to stunt their growth in some ways. So that's why. Pediatricians now, when possible, are shifting from the standard ketogenic diet to modified ketogenic diets, which are a little more liberal in protein. Mm -hmm. Uh, Actually, much more liberal in protein. (laughs) Uh, The proteins goes from like eight percent to like twenty percent. Twenty percent, yeah, Mm. yeah.
0: On on the the protein point, uh, just transitioning over into to a little bit more of the performance world. On so muscle composition and the ketogenic diet, when we look at some of the anti-inflammatory benefits of a ketogenic diet, is there a net decrease in the ability to build muscle as a result of that? Because inflammation is needed to build muscle. Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: Well, I think exercise induced uh, remodeling is initiated in part by an increase in things like reactive oxygen species and some cytokines that are activated from uh, tissue damage. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this tissue damage is a stimulus and the cytokines are also a stimulus because they do things like uh, create a mild state of inflammation that can even redirect blood flow Mm -hmm. uh, to the area, you have local IGF-1 increases Uh, so IGF-1, not from the liver per se, but from the muscle itself. Uh, and we know we can block that with powerful anti-inflammatories and the ketogenic diet has anti-inflammatory properties. Uh, but my, my belief is that the ketogenic diet can prime the muscle to, to be more receptive to anabolic, uh, signaling. So IGF-1 signaling, uh, and a whole host of i won 't go down the list, but there are there's this thing called anabolic resistance that occurs as we age, mm-hmm. and I think the ketogenic diet can help offset that, but the biggest thing that can help offset that is training right yeah. like strength training and doing that, uh, but from a dietary perspective, I think ketogenic diets can be or low carb diets can be the icing on the cake and by by virtue of suppressing insulin to insulin signaling you upregulate insulin uh, and IGF-1 sensitivity in skeletal muscle. So, uh, And we know that when you train, you have localized increase in IGF-1 and you could be amplifying the uh, anabolic signal. And that could be beneficial, especially if you, in 24 to 48 hours, following intense exercise where the remodeling takes place, I'm not a big fan big believer in that you need to consume something, you know, an hour or two hours after your workout. Mm -hmm. But in 24 to 48 hours, if you can bump up your calories and assist with that remodeling and upping your protein, that's kind of what I do. Uh, I think that can be beneficial. Uh, And there's a lot of discussion around protein. (laughs) And I think uh, from my perspective, if you're under 20% protein and you're an athlete and you're trying to gain strength and lean body mass that can have negative consequences. Mm -hmm. So I pretty much always keep my protein above 20% and I probably always keep it under 35%. So it always stays between 25 and 30%. Uh, I don't, I don't feel that it needs to be over 50% (laughs) (laughs) for example, like a lot of people are doing. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's necessary. There's
0: some guys in the lean gains world that, uh, the 50% protein diet, but uh, Dom, if you don't mind, I want to ask just a little bit about your training regimen because I think you took a quite the break from weightlifting, right? And now you're back at it and you're increasing your protein. What does your, your general training regimen look like now um, with sort of this modified ketogenic diet?
1: Yeah, it varies. I did actually take a year off from
0: lifting weights. Can I ask just but, why uh, Why you took a... Well... <laughs>
1: I'm pretty busy here on the farm and uh, so we do sort of have a farm and uh, it's a lot of strenuous work, clearing trees, cutting big trees, loading it. So
0: So you're still still working out.
1: Yeah, probably about five to 10 hours a week, Mm -hmm. like lifting heavy stuff. But I did take a break from weights, but I continued to do things like dips, push-ups, and Mm chin-ups. So I just didn't do it with weights. And my wife has a gym membership, but she doesn't always go. And sometimes I would go with her. Then that phased out, and I just didn't go for a year. But uh, I have tree limbs in my yard where I do chin-ups. I go walk, we walk the dogs every day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for example, when we walk under the tree, I jump up. And do a set of like twenty to twenty-five chins and a couple of different grips, and I'll do that almost every day. So I was always doing something, and then on top of that, deadlifting—you know, big logs and stuff—because we have a lot of work to do on the farm here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I feel like I didn't really skip too much of a of a beat when I got back into at least deadlifting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was there's an, an initial four-week muscle memory kind of thing going on, mm-hmm. especially with bench, which took a big hit. Uh, but 225 was a struggle for like four or five reps. And I used to do, you know, 405 for almost that, but now I'm back up to, you know, like 315 for like what my work sets and things like that. But it took about three or four months to do that, about three months now. And then I took a month off when I was in Hungary, mm-hmm. but I continued to do uh, body weight exercises. So I became a huge fan in doing body weight exercises because, uh, I think you are far less likely to get injured. Mm-hmm. And I feel that there are many benefits, and you can always add weight to your body. Like, my wife would lay on my back and I would do push ups, mm-hmm. right? Or I would uh, have my backpack and we would be traveling somewhere. And it's like we'd be in a park. And I was like, okay, let me do some chin ups and weight my backpack down. So I love doing stuff like that. Uh, but I did have to increase my calories and my protein. Uh, Because when I started lifting, I actually started losing weight and Mm -hmm. I I bumped up my calories, but I basically reignited the metabolic activity in my muscle. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, And, you know, after a day of like deadlifts or a hard compound movement sort of workout, my body would almost be hot and sort of in a state of mild inflammation. And I think that would bump up my metabolic rate. And I'm very consistent with my diet, so my, my calories didn't change that much. I even bumped it up, but my weight started going down uh, just because my metabolism was spiked from, mm-hmm. from lifting weights. So your muscle is really the metabolic engine, and the more you train it, uh, the more efficient it becomes, or maybe even inefficient it becomes, because I think you're, in some part, wasting energy in the form of heat. Mm-hmm. I know when I increase my calories, I get hot and my wife is kind of that way too. When she over consumes carbohydrates, I can feel the heat coming off of her, wow. you know? So I think, I think that's a property of people with really fast metabolisms is that when they overeat, it activates and that's part of the sympathetic nervous system too. And that's why if I eat a lot prior to bed, uh, I can see it in my HRV data,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know? so. So, yeah, I did get back into training, and I do it as much as possible now. Mm -hmm. Now that I'm home, I train every day that I'm home almost, uh, but I train heavy no more than two or three times a week.
0: Okay. And in terms of just your – because you've done some – crazy things with fasting and hyperbaric chambers and a few other things. In terms of just fasting uh, versus time-restricted feeding, how are you looking at your your current diet right now? Is it more early time-restricted feeding or are you still doing fasting at the beginning of the day? Many of us reach for that piece of technology, that nootropic, to take us to the next level. And that could work for a while. In fact, it could work very well for a while but often we head towards a brick wall without knowing it because we don't have our foundations built. And to me, one of those foundations is digestion. You guys know I love Bioptimizers' Masszymes for this, but one of their other products helps serve a problem that I've had for so long. I was lugging around so many different types of magnesium and magnesium breakthrough contains seven different types of magnesium that your body needs and benefits from. That's why I'm excited to tell you about it. And it's the ultimate magnesium supplement. If you want to get your hands on yours, head on over to Mag breakthrough, That's magbreakthrough.com slash boomer. And you can use the code boomer to get up to 40% on different packages of magnesium breakthrough. And why not add some mass signs while you're at it? Again, that's magbreakthrough.com slash boomer. Let's get back to the show.
1: Yeah, on the days I, uh, I teach or I'm, given, uh, I'm busy with meetings at the university and things like that, I tend to fast, and that might be two or three times a week, mm-hmm. and I still continue to do this. But if I do time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting every day, I cannot keep my weight up. Mm-hmm. So uh, today I had steak and eggs for breakfast you know, uh, and yesterday I taught. So, uh, maybe I didn't eat till like four o'clock in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. I feel like I kind of have to make up for it in the day or else, uh, you know, my weight goes down. Uh, but generally speaking, I I'm a real big believer in intermittent fasting. I also believe that, and this is a point, maybe that doesn't get discussed much. If you do intermittent fasting every day, I feel that you lose the benefits of it. So uh, I've kind of transitioned back uh, to to eating breakfast and then just intermittent fasting maybe twice a week, sometimes three or four times a week, or sometimes just once a week, but on average about two times a week. And then I gain more of a mental benefit and even an energetic benefit on those two days per week that I intermittent fast because it's a relative change, right? So if you're intermittent fasting every day, that becomes the state of norm for your body mm-hmm. so you know through homeostasis your body becomes just become uh you know that becomes normal so i think you, de- you can derive more benefits and the benefits that i try to get out of intermittent fasting is that it calms my mind uh i have a better energetic flow so if i have to do something that involves a lot of cognitive horsepower if i'm <laughs> writing a grant or working on a big project or teaching or something like that i will eat up <laughs> eat breakfast and follow more of a spread out diet the days before and intermittent fast uh the day of and uh and try not to push that feeding window too late because if i push it too late then i try to get in too many calories yeah. too late and that disrupts my sleep so i essentially when i intermittent fast i try to eat an early dinner instead of just snacking and eating a dinner later, Mm -hmm. I will have 50% of my calories so much for that first meal and maybe one or two small meals after that.
0: And what's your distance between your last meal and going to bed?
1: Yeah, so uh, like- Ideal. My first meal with intermittent fasting would be between two and four Mm o'clock, sometimes as late as 5 p.m. And that would be like my bigger meal. And then I'll have like a small salad meal, uh, uh, a smaller meal, maybe around seven and then, you know, uh, some keto snacks and stuff at nighttime, maybe nine or 10 o'clock. So I do kind of eat late, but I just try to taper it. So the calories go up initially and then snacking, you know, uh, within that, within that window. So we're talking 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. So a six hour eating window would be what I call my typical, uh, time restricted eating window Okay. on the days that I do it. And I, I really do think it's important for me if I do it every day, I don't derive as much benefit from it as when I do it more intermittently, you know, mm-hmm. two or three times a week.
0: Mm-hmm. But for the average person, uh, let's say f- there's person a who wants cognitive enhancement and there may be this benefit to staggering it for the Mm -hmm. average person is a time restricted feeding, uh, I guess, program the right way to go.
1: Yeah. It depends on your goal. If you're, if your goal is to lose weight, and Mm -hmm. I would say about half of people are, you know, are really wanting to lose body fat or lose weight. I think intermittent fasting uh, is a good long-term strategy for many people. It, it is sustainable. Mm-hmm. Uh, just skipping breakfast you know, is sustainable, even more sustainable than following a ketogenic diet. So ideally, low-carb intermittent fasting is a very powerful tool for not only weight loss, but weight loss maintenance too. So a lot of people can lose weight, but maintaining that weight loss is more difficult. And I would say low-carb, Combined with intermittent fasting is probably the most powerful way that I know to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, people need to be committed, and they have to sort of fundamentally not like breakfast. (laughs) So so that that I you know I and I run into people who just kind of do that anyway. Just like you know I don't have time. I don't like breakfast. I'm not hungry in the morning. Mm -hmm. But if you uh, but then again, or people who just don't like to eat late at night. So I'm not one of those people. <laughs> my appetite, uh, when I wake up, my body is in go mode. And it's like, I could see it in my HRV, my my heart rate spikes. I'm just ready to go. When I wake up, my mind is flooded with things like wild animals, like rushing in my head, like I got to do this and that. Mm-hmm. And then I like to off at night and my body goes into like relaxation mode. Where, uh, But I don't like to consume a lot of, a heavy meal at nighttime because that invariably disrupts my sleep. Mm-hmm. influences my uh, energy the next day. But, uh, but I think, I mean, to answer your question, I think people need to experiment. Uh, if, the, if, they're losing, if losing weight is their goal, the more you intermittent fast and incorporate that regimen into your daily activities, the more progress you're, you're going to make. If you are 60 or 70 year old, my last conversation was with an individual that was like 70 and they were do, doing it for health reasons, you know, glucose control, managing a chronic illness, then I told him to do it, you know, every day. I think it would be advisable to do it every day. Work with your doctor, tell him what you're doing. Uh, all the blood markers were going in the right direction and they were uh, effectively managing, you know, a chronic disorder. And it was primarily due to that time-restricted eating window. And it was doing it better than drugs. Mm-hmm. So, it is. I mean, we're talking about something that works, uh, in many cases, more powerful than drugs. As far as glucose control, reduced inflammation, people with autoimmune disorders who have, like, rheumatoid arthritis, things like that. So, mm-hmm. your food choice is important, too. But that time-restricted eating window and the calorie restriction that results from that... Is a very powerful medicine. Mm-hmm.
0: One of the things I've heard you've played around with in the past and is very, very popular now, or at least in some of the forums that I get messages from is one meal a day. And you have a lot of people doing one meal a day, particularly late in the day. Um wh- It doesn't sound like you do that too much anymore. Correct me if I'm wrong there, but what do you think about this general one meal a day in terms of optimizing body composition?
1: I think it's okay if it's not, uh, as long as you do it three hours before you go to sleep. Okay. So I tend to like to, what we like to do is watch some kind of documentary or do some kind of activity where we're relaxing,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: kind of snacking at night, but having our heavy meal three or four hours before that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, uh, because I've been in situations of him traveling or whatever, the day comes to an end at eight or nine o'clock, and then I we go out to dinner or something like that for traveling. I eat a heavy meal, and I just I don't sleep well, mm-hmm. uh, or I'm, I work really late. So that is like you know, invariably this happens so I can predict it and I do it anyway (laughs) and I do it and I know the consequences. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I would encourage people that if they are doing one meal a day, just don't do it right before you go to bed. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not going to, it's not going to help you. Uh, And I think it's better to spread out your meal. If you're going to do one meal a day, just do four hours of grazing (laughs) before you go
0: to
1: bed, you know, mm-hmm. between four
0: o'clock and eight o'clock or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I've done that too. And I think that's better. Uh, one thing I, I've heard you talk about is uh postprandial blood glucose spikes and just over time, the effects that that can have on longevity or potential effects on longevity. I'm not sure how much we have in terms of studies on that. What, what do you think of cheat meals? As a result of something like that, is it something that people can incorporate, or is it just a bad idea in general?
1: I think if you're if you're overweight and you're trying to, you know, and your goal is glucose management or to lose weight, I don't even think like cheat meal should be a word that you should entertain. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I I would kind of rephrase it as a refeed. So if you are running a calorie deficit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even in the fitness community, I think this is popular, maybe twice a week to incorporate a refeed meal where it's more calculated. So you eat your, your normal allotment, you know, your normal diet, and then you calculate, uh, and it doesn't have to be carbs either. It could just be 20 to 50%, uh, more of the additional food, but, uh, it tends to work really well for lean people. Mm -hmm to help reset their metabolism. But if someone is trying to lose weight and they do a cheat meal, you could do an enormous amount of damage uh, with a cheat meal. It is pretty easy for a human to eat two or three times their their daily caloric intake uh, with a cheat meal, with certain Mm -hmm. kinds of foods. You know, if we're talking about cheesecake, like chocolate cake, like uh, certain types of foods which are calorically dense, you can actually... Really do do a lot of damage. Boxes of cookies and things like that. So I've seen it happen, and I think it leads to uh, and some personality types. And that's a whole nother. You know, a lot of people kind of know enough about nutrition to eat healthy, but they need like uh, not like a nutrition. They need a, a nutrition psychotherapist yeah. because their their relationship with food is messed up and it's more of a psychological and I'm a physiologist, like so I study the physio- the metabolic physiology, but and I've worked with people and realized okay there's not physiology is not the problem here. This is the, the problem is the person's psychological relationship with food, which is way beyond my pay grade. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that cheat meals do a disservice to many people who are trying to really establish healthy eating Behavior because they figure, oh, okay, I blew my diet, so let me just eat a whole pizza and then finish off with chocolate cake tonight because I just and I'll I'll reset in the morning.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, this is not good behavior. I've seen it in the bodybuilding community and the fitness community, and uh, it's a fairly common thing. And being overly controlled with your diet, uh, especially with macros, and even you know if it fits your macros kind of approach, mm-hmm. where people become really a, Uh, preoccupied in a neurotic way with with macros and weighing things out uh, that you can only do that for so long, I think. Mm -hmm. So that's why I really do like carbohydrate restriction or some degree of carbohydrate restriction, because I think it it tinkers with our brain in a way that uh, amplifies the auto-regulation properties of the brain uh, for healthy eating habits, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know when you 're spiking your glucose and insulin repeatedly with processed foods, I think it becomes harder for the individual to control their eating behavior, certain individuals
0: mm-hmm.
1: so low carb higher fiber uh, foods can also help delay that gastric absorption um, mm-hmm. so so some my thoughts are
0: okay um on the I guess on the longevity aspect, so looking at longevity and some of the things that we said earlier about Alzheimer's, for instance, would it be kind of ideal at a certain point in one's life to switch from more of a carbs base to a higher fat? Like, could that potentially be a solution for a longevity diet, if you will?
1: Yeah, I, I think as we age, our carbohydrate tolerance declines with age, even if we are working out, but that can be, I've seen individuals that are thirties and forties start working out and their carbohydrate tolerance increases. Mm -hmm. Um, in many cases though, these individuals were athletic in their youth, so they tend to, it's kind of a muscle memory thing. But, uh, if we do become more carb intolerant with age, and we need to get our calories from somewhere. Uh, I think it is important to, to maintain protein mm-hmm. because we want to offset. Probably most important is to offset that age associated sarcopenia. Mm-hmm. So the more lean body mass and muscle we keep, uh, probably that's like the, the key, the most important thing. And that comes down to maintaining your strength and the basic compound movements, or you don't even have to go to the gym. It could be, You know, dips, chins, push-ups, things like that. Uh, So that is probably first and foremost the most important thing. And then you can continue to eat the same diet, but you might have to titrate the calories in ways that uh, just match your metabolism. But my belief, and I think that's like the general recommendation, and even the top level people who study aging and muscle sarcopenia will tell you that, but my belief is that uh, a mild degree of carbohydrate restriction with moderate to higher protein would be the, the way uh, to approach uh, a longevity diet and then to take that diet and then incorporate uh, intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating mm-hmm. as in do that. Uh, Art Devaney has a pretty good approach. I don't know if you know, have yeah. know of him. Um, uh, and you know, he was a little bit out there a little, but I think his approach is very sensible and mm-hmm. in, in the way uh, he advocates it. And he's also, uh, uh, a specimen in and of itself. So he's kind of living proof, mm-hmm. but I know people who follow him have, um, so I think it's important to follow some of the people, not just the basic scientists who are, <laughs> you know, putting the information out there, but the people that are living it and doing it, we have a lot to learn from them mm-hmm. because the science on longevity as it pertains to the human who really wants to be optimized for strength and performance, that science is not really totally there yet. <laughs> it might be there. There's suggestions as it pertains to living as long as possible, but to basically be the highest functioning human. Uh, and also without <laughs> uh, impairing your longevity, mm-hmm. uh, because I think, You know, anabolic hormones and super high protein diets and, you know, some of the things being done at very high level strength athletes can have negative consequences. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we're told the more muscle we have, the longer we're going to live. But that muscle needs to be supported by systems in the body, organ systems, your kidneys, your liver, uh, the massive amount of food you're consuming. Food invariably will have certain levels of toxins And toxins associated with metabolic processes to break it down are just uh, 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 an epiphenomenon of that Mm -hmm. and you'll suffer the consequences of that. So I think it's really important to, you know, to eat eat as much as possible to maintain your strength and your muscle, but not above that and not to have wild cheat meals and really, I don't think it's favorable to have a goal to be super strong, to be like for many years, I maintained 230 to 250 pounds and would vary between that. But now I feel better at 210 to 220 or 215 is Mm -hmm. kind of like the sweet spot. And I feel I have a bigger frame and I'm taller. So for me, that's, that's ideal and I think that's ideal for longevity. Mm-hmm. And when I get down to like 200, I almost like look emaciated just because I have a bigger frame. But, uh, but I think that's important too because some people really try to be as big as possible and, and conversely, some people try to be as lean and thin as possible and I don't think that's good too because if we're stricken with illness, uh, having that extra cushion, that mass, that body mass can be favorable uh, because it gives us sort of metabolic currency yeah. <laughs> in aging, uh, but it re- can really help us if we are to become injured if we break a leg or some- something like that. I mean, it's almost like having uh, savings in the bank. You mm-hmm. know, uh, it's almost having like investment savings in the bank that we can draw off of later on.
0: When it, you mentioned IIFY, IIFYM earlier, and I should have. <laughs> fi- I should have. Did I get that? If it fits your macros, uh, IIFYM. Yeah, got it. And I should have asked this question then, but the importance of micronutrients in that community sometimes goes overlooked. Suffice to say, getting broad spectrum of minerals is quite important to making sure that all this machinery works. That do I have that right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, I haven't seen data to show that people who follow. I I F Y M, and everybody will, I guess, choose different foods, right? (laughs) And some people choose high nutrient density foods, so it all depends, you know, what what kind of foods Mm are they're fitting with their macros. Uh, But I know there's like the Pop Tart people, right, or people who advocate this this approach that just, you know, if it fits your macros, that's the way I haven't seen data to indicate that their nutritional status is compromised. Mm -hmm. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me, but I don't know as a scientist, I cannot reliably, uh, confidently say that that would compromise nutritional status, but Mm -hmm. it can't do it any good. (laughs) Right. So I think, uh, Ideally, what we want to do is get the maximum amount of nutrition with the least amount of calories, right? Yeah. And, but nutrition can be calories too. Like you, There's protein you need, fuel, right? So you need to drive the metabolic engine with macronutrients. And the more we do that with uh, fuels that require the mitochondria to do the work instead of glycolysis, so fat and ketones, tend to enhance mitochondrial energy production over time and stimulate things like mitochondrial biogenesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition, they, by virtue of carbohydrate restriction, you're suppressing the hormone insulin and IGF-1 and preventing postprandial spikes in, in meals that could be pro-inflammatory or, uh, or even atherogenic. So I think there are... It, when, when one follows a carbohydrate-restricted, higher-fat, healthy-fat diet over time in a protracted way, I think these benefits accumulate over time and then carry over into uh, enhancing the aging phenotype in a way that makes them less uh, anabolic-resistant and, and leaves their body and metabolic physiology in a better state if they followed a higher carb diet or an, if it fits your macros approach that Mm -hmm. favors carbohydrate as fuel. Okay. So that's sort of encompasses my philosophy. (laughs) Excellent.
0: The current state of the ketone supplement world, or I guess we can broadly speaking, talk about ketone snacks first. Because mm-hmm. I've seen photos of you snacking on, I think it was a Pop-Tart actually recently. Like I day.
1: test things. Yeah, that was <laughs>
0: yesterday. Yeah. Um, I'm testing it
1: today after this. It'll be like in my next meal. I have to wait a couple hours, but I will test my blood response to it.
0: I would love to see those results because it's um, the ketone snack or the, key, uh, the ketogenic snacks are obviously proliferating all over the world, right? And what do you think about these? Like, do you have any favorites? I know, uh, well, no foods kind of went away. Uh, what other things, what other things do you like?
1: Well, okay. I am a, a big whole foods person. Yeah. And, uh, people send me snacks and I have <laughs> a lot of things that I probably only post about and test about 20% of what's actually sent to me. hmm uh, and some companies, the personalities behind them and the mission behind these foods are very noble. And uh, there are, you know, there's there's no way to change certain eating behaviors. And uh, maybe you know, in grad school, we had class uh, the mechanisms of addiction and the mechanisms of depression and, and substance abuse the easiest way to get someone on the right track if they're abusing a substance. And I do think food can be abused is not to eliminate that food, but to transition them into something less, uh, damaging if we're talking about
0: a drug substance, so right? So it would be like a step down approach almost. Yeah. We obviously. Okay. Yep, yep,
1: yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, that that's what I mean. And uh and many of these foods are a big step in that direction. Mm-hmm. So like a Quest bar instead of a candy bar yeah. or a this Pop Tart. Well, we'll see what the numbers produce when I test it. Uh but allulose is is pretty interesting compound yeah. and that is basically largely replacing uh, sugar. Mm-hmm. Right? And it is Almost, it's non-glycemic. Even our my type one diabetic uh, student, uh, PhD student now, Doctor uh, Andrew Kutnick, uh he has tried various things, and they have a minimal glycemic response relative to the store bought equivalent,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? So, I think from the perspective of, of a person who has diabetes, this can be a tremendous health benefit for them. So, I think there's that market, but even for the everyday person. If they were for the duration of their lifespan, if they just loved Pop-Tarts <laughs> and did away with the Walmart, you know, store brand Pop-Tarts mm-hmm. and ate these Pop-Tarts over ten years, I think that's going to pay big dividends, you know, preventing uh, eliminating that highly processed. Not that you know these new Pop-Tarts are unprocessed, but I think they're a step in the right direction. The issue that I have with many of them is that my gut does not really tolerate soluble fibers like inulin and chicory root and soluble corn fiber and even acacia. Uh, so I have a relatively low tolerance. Some people can eat tons of it and have, you know, have no, no problems at all. But for like certain things like the quest bars, or I am predicting that these, uh, Pop-Tarts too, my, my daily limit would probably be about two. Mm -hmm. So, um, actually I ate two yesterday and I was kind of okay. But, uh, but generally speaking, inulin just seems to fire up my gut microbes and I just get bloated and my gut does not tolerate it well. Mm -hmm. And I would think I would adapt to it over time, but it doesn't seem to get any better. So, uh, the Hungarian group paleo medicina (laughs) that with them in Hungary and they are adamantly against, you know, these kinds of things and have remarkable, uh, clinical success with animal fats mm-hmm. and specifically pork, like an, an animal, uh, protein, but not even poultry. And, uh, And I'm believing that that's like a way that my body feels best, Mm -hmm. Uh, just really sticking to whole foods. So I I view these snack foods as something that they're almost like emergency foods when you're traveling and you just need energy. I think they're good. They're fun to test. Uh, If I have these in the house and I'm craving something sweet, uh, I can have one of these things and then my – you know, I'm satiated and I feel totally fine. Uh, so, so they're fun to test and I know they are proliferating in popularity mm-hmm. too. So uh,
0: a couple of final questions, cause I know you have to go here, but why do you think adherence to, well, I mean, every diet is pretty bad, but ketosis, why do you think people struggle to adhere to it?
1: It is a restrictive diet yeah. and carbohydrates are ubiquitous. Yeah not only in the store, but in marketing. Uh, They are easy, they are cheap, they taste good. uh, We feel good when we eat them, at least initially. Uh, And we are genetically hardwired to crave them. So uh, we, we crave them less once our body is adapted away from them, once we're fat adapted and keto adapted. And of all things, that's probably been the most remarkable observation of this journey that I've been on, not only in basic science and now clinical science and studying low-carb diets and ketogenic diets is the remarkable adaptability of the, the human mm-hmm. can adapt to like an all-fat diet, which I thought was impossible. I even went through a nutrition program like in college wow. and didn't even know this was possible until you know my late postdoc years. Um, So what's truly remarkable is that we are incredibly adaptable to different fuel sources. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and even maybe more remarkable is that once we adapt to a certain way of eating, it can really change our preference over time for certain food types. And maybe it's just an aging thing with me, but, uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I can walk into a pastry shop and really not, crave things and can see other people go in and the dopamine is just shooting off and they're taking pictures and they're like picking this and that. <laughs> uh, my, you know, my, my wife is like that, but she's also really good with auto-regulating. Mm-hmm. Like she will buy a big chocolate cupcake and she can eat half of it be like, I'm totally done. And then put it in a refrigerator and five days later, you know, can go back to it. Mm-hmm. So she naturally has that where I'm not, I prior to being on ketogenic diets i was not like that if it was in front of me it would be gone oh yeah
0: oh yeah i would <laughs> and eat the whole thing <laughs> just had like an
1: extreme yeah i just ha- and i think it's an unhealthy relationship with food and i think some of these foods are designed to to activate you know these <laughs> these dopaminergic pathways mm-hmm. in, in the and the brain to basically uh, force us to eat as much as possible of that thing in front of us so uh, but after being keto adapted, that's like a non-issue for me now, and I don't want to go back to that. So that's in part why I'm sticking to this crazy way of eating that people still think in the conventional world.
0: Uh, one of the people that, are two of the people that I'm excited to meet at your conference, uh, Volek and Finney, obviously with yeah. with Verda. I love what they're doing, and it By seems years, yeah. yeah, it seems to be a, a very successful model to get adherence granted it's in diabetes, but I do think that model can be applied elsewhere as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was, I got to give them massive props because I know it has must've been an uphill battle for them. Mm -hmm. And I've been following them along the way. I'm good friends with with Jeff Volick and and admired his work uh, for a long time and and really glad to see this taking hold Uh, and love giving them this platform to speak about this, Topic, which could be the most important topic, I think, in the low carb community, getting in control of type two diabetes and yeah. obesity, but type two diabetes is the big one. Uh, so yeah, I'm glad you'll be able to get a chance to meet them and uh, and ask them questions too. They should be on the panel. Uh, so I think that you know, of all the things that are most important for this community, and I think it is. The most important thing is to support carbohydrate restriction and ketogenic diets for managing type 2 diabetes because mm-hmm. it's a healthcare burden. I've talked to insurance agencies and people in the healthcare community who are on the back end, you know, having to pay for all this, these medications for the patients and the companies, and it's a huge healthcare burden. And I think Verda, uh, they're pioneers in being able to address this problem in the most efficient way possible. It's a dietary problem and it needs a dietary solution.
0: I think this is a great place to to leave off, but Dr. Dom, where can people find out more about you?
1: Uh, Our website is Mm ketonutrition.org. And uh, I think that, and you can follow me on Instagram, Dominic D'Agostino, KT, uh, Twitter and Facebook should be pretty easy to find. But ketonutrition.org, we have a blog, I have resources. I have people ask me what ketone supplements I use are listed on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have any ketone uh, supplements myself. I don't sell any products, but I do support companies that, that have good products. And they're the products that I test. And if I test it, then I put it on my website. And if, it, you know, if I support the product, you know, it'll be on the website.
0: And just it all goes back to the lab and funding research, right?
1: yeah okay. absolutely awesome. yeah so we have uh different affiliate links and occasionally you may see me post like an amazon link too and they have uh support so it goes back to uh supporting the the mission 100 percent of the the research funds uh and also we're looking to support the nemo mission mm-hmm. so our company ketone technologies uh has to fund that and it's not not an easy thing to fund so we're always fundraising to allow us to participate uh in these types of missions because we really do feel that nutrition will be a critical important factor for uh deep space missions Mm -hmm. uh but also obviously the work we're doing with the military too ties into that but our company really is interested in funding sort of out-of-the-box strategies that can be ultimately used, you know, uh, not only by the warfighter, but also potentially in space.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: uh, so we are looking, when you support these companies and the companies on the website, and I don't, not all my links on there are affiliate links, but uh, some of the companies do, like Ample is a good example, and they donate uh, 1% of all revenue will go to support our research. Awesome. and. And that's, that's an awesome company. Uh, so yeah, I want for, for your listeners, if they're interested in trying any of these products and the all products that they use. Yeah. Uh, I, I, appreciate it if they purchase it through keto nutrition.
0: Of course. And we'll link to that in the show notes and also yeah. link to ways that people can donate, uh, to support your research because, you. uh, Dr. Dom, this has been absolutely amazing. Uh, I love to support what you do and everything that you're doing and pushing the research. So thank you so much for taking the time today.
1: Thanks for having me, I
0: appreciate it. And to all the superhumans listening out there, have an epic day. In case you couldn't tell at the end of the interview, I was caught off guard by Dr. Dominic D'Agostino's selflessness when it came to the money that comes into keto nutrition and how he devotes that solely to research. When you're in a position of influence, You can certainly use it to make more money, but Dr. D'Agostino is using it to further his research, and that is something that I want to support. For all the superhumans listening to this, if there is anything, any aspect of the ketogenic diet that interests you, head over to ketonutrition.org, and please go ahead and buy something, because all of that money goes to support Dr. D'Agostino's research. The show notes for this one are decodingsuperhuman.com slash dom, that's D-O-M. And thank you again for tuning in, superhumans. If you enjoyed it, please share it on your favorite social network. I love you all and have an epic day.